you have your Bible with you, open up to John chapter 20. Just to kind of remind you, in case you're not aware, uh, at this point in the life of Christ, well, he's dead. Or so they believe that he's dead. He's been hung on a cross. He's been crucified by the Romans. The Jewish leaders didn't want him around. They felt that uh, he, he was taking the people away from them. He's been killed. The apostles, his followers, their life is shaken up. They'd spent the last three years following Jesus. They thought this is the one that's going to free Israel from the Roman rule. He's the Messiah. He's the Savior, which he was. But they didn't understand how all this was going to work together. So picture it if you can. Has your life ever been a disaster? Where you've been on a path, you've been going in a direction, all of a sudden everything you thought to be true, everything you thought to be right is now just rubble. It's just crushed. That's where the apostles are at here on the first day of the week back almost 2,000 years ago. You see, they had invested the last three years to follow Jesus. They thought he is it. This is where we're going. But all of a sudden, things aren't turning out the way they thought they would turn out. You see, they had their own mind. They had in their own mind a plan, an expectation of the way they thought things should go. He's going to come into Jerusalem 10 days before this, and the people are praising him. Hosanna, which means save now. The people are praying. They're laying down palm branches on Palm Sunday. The prophecies are being fulfilled. This is the Messiah. And then here we are on the first day of the week, Sunday morning, because Sunday is the first day of the week. We always think it's Monday, but it's Sunday. And the apostles, they're devastated. They're scared. They're afraid. They're trying to figure out what's going on. They don't know what to do from here. They're really plain out just crushed. And let's look with me in John chapter 20, verse 1. We're going to look at the entire chapter this morning. Now, on the first day of the week, which is Sunday, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And she ran and she came to Simon Peter and said to the other disciple to whom Jesus loved and said to them, they've taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple, and they were going to the tomb. So they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter. And he came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down, looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there. Yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him, and he went into the tomb. And he saw the linen cloths lying there. And the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. But the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. And the disciples went away again to their own homes. We're told in the other gospels that Mary Magdalene or Mary of Magdala was coming to the tomb first with some other women. They get there on their way, on their journey there, they were, had a question about it. How are we going to move the rock that blocks the entrance to the tomb? They get there and they find that the rock has already been moved. It's already been moved. Now, you have a tendency maybe like me to think that they had to move the rock. The rock had to be moved to let Jesus out, right? Because he was in the tomb, so he had to be moved to let him out. No, 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 that's not true at all. He could walk through walls. Do you know why the rock had to be moved? So that we could see in. It wasn't like Jesus was in the tomb going, hey, would you let me out of here? Hello, somebody help me out here? That wasn't the case at all. 
You see, the rock had to be moved so that we could see in. Because when we look into an empty tomb, it means, it shows that God has accepted the sacrifice that Jesus made. It shows that he's no longer dead, but he's alive. Now, as they get there, Mary Magdalene sees this. Mary of Magdala, that's what her name, Magdala was the place where she, where she was from. Which, by the way, we visited in Israel. While we were there, we got to see the first century synagogue, that the ruins are still there, they've been unearthed. We got to see the first century synagogue where Jesus would have stood. But she gets there first, and she sees the rock moved away, and what does she do? She runs back and she tells the apostles. She tells them, hey, they've taken away the Lord, of the, the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they've laid him. Peter, what does Peter do? Him and John take off on a race. They're running to the they're running to the tomb. They want to see what's going on. Why? Because they don't really believe Mary. So it's, it's impossible. Nobody stole, the, nobody stole the body. We've got to go figure out what's going on. Now, I like this. Notice what it says. So they both ran together. And the other disciple, that's John, by the way, the other disciple, outran Peter and came to the tomb first. Isn't it like a guy to put in there who won the race? I mean, we're competitive. He's going to tell us twice in this section of Scripture he made it to the tomb first. Now, we know that John was probably in his late teens or early 20s, and Peter was probably a little bit older and a, and a bigger guy. But John wants us to know, hey, I got there first. So John gets to the tomb, and he looks in, and he sees the linen clothes or linen cloths lying there. But he just peeks in. There's about a little small entrance, and he just kind of peeks into the tomb. And Peter, Peter's like that bull in a china closet. He just comes barreling right, and he just runs right in there. And he sees the linen cloth lying in the tomb also. Do you know why it's important that the linen cloths are lying there? Because it means the body wasn't stolen. You see, the scripture there indicates, the wording would indicate that the cloth was lying in the same way that it was arranged when Jesus was inside of it. Some people believe that it was actually hardened by the spices and it may have been standing up in the mold or the shape of a body. You see, Jesus didn't, when he rose, he didn't have to, man, what's all this stuff all over me and start pulling it off? He just came out of it. He just came out. The cloth was left laying there where, right where it was in the same order, in the same place that it was. Now, do you think it's possible somebody came in and stole the body and put it all back the way that it was? No, that's not likely. The same way he walked out of the cloth is the same way that he could have walked through the tomb. That's why he didn't need it open to get out. That's why we needed it open so that we could see in and know that the tomb is empty. But he also says, that they also tell us, John's account says, the cloth that covered his face was folded separately. Some people believe the head, the neck was left uncovered. It was just next to it. Some people believe it was set actually in a different part. Either way, it's folded separately. It's put in a different order. It's set in a way where it wasn't set originally. It just goes to show you again, he wasn't stolen. He left everything behind. If someone was to steal the body, they wouldn't have uncovered it. And then it says, the other disciple, John, came into the tomb first. He went in and he saw. He saw, and it says he believed. John wants you to know here that this is where he believed in the resurrection of Jesus. But just because he believed, he also wants you to know he had no idea what was really going on. Because in the very next sentence, verse 9, he says, For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. The disciples went away again to their own house. What just happened? They just got another monkey wrench thrown into their whole mess that they're living. 
Their life is falling apart. They're trying to figure out what's going on. Now the body's missing. John believes, but he doesn't really know what to believe. He doesn't know what's going on. And what do they do? They go home. It says they went back to their home, wherever they were staying there. But look at Mary. But Mary stood out. This is Mary Magdalene, or Mary of Magdala, stood outside by the tomb weeping. And that word means wailing. It doesn't mean like there's a tear. It means like convulsing, like weeping, like just, just all out weeping, crying. She's weeping, she's crying. And she stooped down. She looks into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, because they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. I like that. They have taken away my Lord. She didn't say they've taken away the Lord. She didn't say they've taken away Jesus. They didn't take away the Messiah. They didn't take away God. They took away my Lord. Remember, remember who Mary from Magdala was? She was a demon-possessed woman that Jesus had set free. She was demon-possessed. She came to Christ. He, he rebuked the demons and cast the demons out of her. She was present at the cross when he died. Her dedication, her devotion to him is clear. And now she's here, the first one, first group to come to the tomb because they weren't even able to finish giving him a proper burial. They needed to finish packing the body with spices. So here she is first. Why are you crying? She doesn't even recognize them as angels. Possibly just dressed like men there in white. Why are you crying? They've taken away my Lord. I don't know where they've laid him. Now when she said this in verse 14, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing there and she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus says to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, sir, if, you have, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will, I will take him away. Interesting. She's having a conversation with Jesus, but she doesn't know it's him. Well, how come she doesn't recognize him, Rob? How come I don't get it? Well, there's a couple of theories on it. One means, one, one because she was weeping and wailing so much that her eyes are were filled with tears and she couldn't see quite clearly. One says Jesus' body was looked a little bit different. Some people think that he just kept, he didn't want her to recognize him yet. That he just, he blinded her eyes until the proper time. She thinks he's a gardener and she says, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. She wasn't even strong enough to take him away. An average sized man, she would have had to lift him and take him somewhere. And Jesus said to her, Mary, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say teacher. The next thing Jesus has to say is, Mary, let me go. Jesus says to her one word. He says, Mary. He calls her by name. And she recognizes exactly who's calling that name. She's heard him say Mary before. And it says, she calls him teacher, Rabboni. And then Jesus says to her, don't cling to me. For I have not yet ascended to my Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father and to my God and to your God. Now this is not because, this is not some, something that hey, she can't touch him because he, can't, he hasn't ascended yet. This is something she's grabbed onto him. This woman is weeping. She recognizes her Lord is alive. She's hugging him. She's grabbing on him. She won't let him go. And, Mary, and Jesus has to say, Mary, let me go. That's what don't cling to me means. It means don't hold on to me. Go, go, I've got work for you to do, Mary. Go, there's something I want you to do. 
He said, I'm going to send it. I want you to go, to go to the brothers. Go to my brethren. Notice he calls them brethren. These are the same brethren that acted like they didn't know him. These are the same brethren that when he was arrested, they just took off. These are the same men that were so close, we're going to fight with them, and all of a sudden they couldn't be found. With the exception of John, they weren't even present at his crucifixion. Peter denied even knowing him to the little little girl. Didn't even know him. She says, go tell my brothers. Tell my brothers. I'm ascending to the Father, my Father, your Father, and my God, your God. Mary came and she told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and he had spoken these things to her. And what do you think the disciples said? Didn't believe a word she said. Mark chapter 16, verse 11 tells us they didn't believe her. They thought she was crazy. We don't believe you, Mary. It's not possible. But look at verse 19. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled, for the fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst, and he said to them, Peace be with you. Please understand when it says the doors were shut, it means locks bolted the chair up against it. It means this wasn't like their door was just closed. They, they wanted some privacy. They were afraid of the Jews. Why were they afraid of the Jews? They thought they were next. They killed Christ. They're going to come after us. They, we, everybody knows we're his followers. Now what are we going to do? Their life is a disaster. Their life is in turmoil. They don't know which way to turn. They don't know what to do. And I want you to notice what Jesus does. The first thing he blesses them with is his presence. He says, I'll be in, I'm here. He shows up. He shows up right in their midst. In, in, in the middle of their life falling apart, he says, I'm here. I'm here. And look what he says to them. Not only do they get his presence, what does he say to them? Peace, peace be with you. That's what we want in a difficult life, isn't it? Isn't that what we're looking for? Aren't we looking for you know, financial peace? Aren't we looking for political peace? Aren't we looking for world peace? Don't we want peace in our own life? We're, we're looking for, we're, we're doing all kinds of things and spending all kinds of money striving for peace. I just want peace and quiet. I just want rest. Jesus says, I'm here. I'm peace. Peace be with you. And shalom is what it means in Hebrew. When you go into a shop there, what do they say? They say, shalom. Peace be with you. Peace is what they're looking for. He shows up with his presence. He offers them his peace. And then look what he says. Verse 20. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were glad, which means they rejoiced, a state of happiness or well-being when they saw the Lord. He stands in their midst. They're scared to death of the Romans. They're scared to death of the Jewish religious leaders. He stands in his midst and he says, peace be with you. And he opens up his hand and says, look, it's me. I'm alive. Here's my side. You want to see? It's where the sword went in. Here it is. Take a look. What do you need? Here I am. And their response was they were ecstatic. They were amazed. It says they were glad when they saw the Lord. He gives them his presence. He gives them his peace. In verse 21, so Jesus again said to them, peace to you. Why do you have to say it again? Because they still didn't have it. He had to say it again. Peace to you. Peace. Do you have that peace in your life? Or is your life much like the apostles' life? Maybe it wasn't the same set of circumstances that led up to why their life seems to be falling apart. Maybe your life seems to be falling apart for a different reason. Maybe you too are saying, well, yeah, I sure would like to get some peace today. That's surely what I'd like to find. I mean, I, 
My life is a mess. You don't understand. I got problems at work. I got problems at home. I got problems with my kids. I got problems everywhere. Do you know Jesus still makes the same offer? Peace. It's still available for us. Peace. Jesus said to them again, peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Do you know what he just said? He said, I've, he gave them his presence. He offers them his peace. And now he just gave them direction. He just gave them a purpose. As the Father has sent me, I am now sending you. You see, they didn't have a purpose before he walked into the room. They didn't know what their life would contain. They didn't know what tomorrow held. They didn't know what next week is going to hold. They had no idea which, what direction to move. But Jesus says, I'm going to bring my peace. You've got my presence. Now, how about I give you a purpose? There's something I want you to do. There's, there's, some, there, there's a plan in play. There's something unfolding. Do you need a plan for your life? Maybe you're like them and you think, well, I just, my life has no purpose. My life has no meaning. I don't even really know why I'm here. I just go through. You know, I'm like the hamster on the, the hamster wheel. I just go around in a circle. Every day is the same thing and nothing ever changes. It's just on and on and on and on. If you feel like that, Jesus says, I have a purpose for you. Don't believe for a moment that's all that life has to offer. When you choose to follow Christ, you choose to fulfill the purpose that he has for your life. Well, what's that purpose? Well, I don't know what yours is. I know what mine is because I'm doing it. Don't think purpose for life means I've got to do something super spiritual or super religious. Purpose for life can be being a godly wife or a godly husband. Matter of fact, it is. Purpose for life can be being a godly employee. Purpose for your life can be meaning working at your career for the Lord. Purpose of life means I'm doing my life the way the Lord has called me to live it. You see, it means just simply giving God an opportunity to say, this is what I'd like you to do. It means that you'll take time to seek God and say, God, what is the purpose for my life? What is it that you want me to do? What is it, what direction do you, where do you want me to live? What do you want me to serve? What do you, how do you want me to help? Will you bring people that I can help? It's simply giving the opportunity, placing God above yourself and allowing him the chance to direct your life in the direction that he leads. What would have happened if the guy I told you about, Jordan, said, nah, there'll be nobody down there baptizing and missed out on it? I'm glad he didn't do that. He would have got baptized by somebody else, but I would have missed that blessing. I would have missed the opportunity to bless him. I'm glad he was obedient to the Lord that day to come down to the water of the Jordan to be baptized because I got to be blessed by it. And even though I know God's at work, I get to see it once again. And every time I see something like that, I'm amazed. And it's just, it's such a blessing. His presence, his peace, his, priest, his peace, he gives him the proof Look, I'm going to prove to you, I'm going to prove to you that I'm the one, that I'm risen. Look at my hands. Here's my side. He's proven to them because they were doubting, weren't they? They're still trying to make sense. Isn't it cool that Jesus didn't show up there and say, look, you bunch of bumbling idiots. I already told you I was going to die and rise again. I told you in Matthew, I told you in Mark, I told you, you know, this temple would be destroyed, it would be built back. I already told you all this. What's wrong with you guys? That's how we have a tendency to act, isn't it? But that's not Jesus. Jesus says, you need my presence, here I am. You need my peace, here I am. You want proof? I like that. Well, I don't even know if I believe in Jesus. You want proof? If you'll seek him, you'll get all the proof that you need. 
If you will seek the Lord with an open heart and say, I want to know, are you real? You will get all the proof you need. He'll give you everything that you need to prove it. He'll meet you right there. He'll prove it to you. He gives them a purpose. They go from a group of people devastated with no direction to all of a sudden he goes, hey, I got something for you guys to do. Great. Purpose. And look what he says next. He says, so Jesus said to them again, peace to you and the Father has sent me. I also send you. In verse 22, and when he said, said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. He just gave them power and authority. He gave them their, his presence. He gave them his peace. He proved to them it was him. He gave them a purpose. And now he just gave them the Holy Spirit, which is the power and the authority to carry out the purpose that he had given them. You see, because when Jesus says, you know, go, tell the people. I, I'm sending you to tell the people. What's the purpose? It was the Great Commission. That, that was their purpose. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them, teaching them to observe all the things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Go, make disciples. That's the purpose that he gave them. I'm sending you to make disciples. Well, we don't know how to do that. We don't know what to do. Not only am I giving you a purpose, I'm going to give you the power and the authority that you need to carry out that purpose. Do you see what God's doing here? He's taking a group of devastated men, not understanding what's going on, all broken up. He meets them right where they are. He doesn't say, you come meet me. I'll meet you here. He goes to where they are. He meets them. He gives them what, exactly what they need from his peace to his proof to the purpose. And he gives them a calling. I want you guys to go out and make disciples. Well, yeah, but what about the Romans? What about the Jewish leaders? What about this? No, no. I'm going to give you the power and the authority that you need. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. It's the same way in our lives. Don't think for a minute that you can accomplish God's purpose in your life without the power of the Holy Spirit. I will promise you that God's purpose for you is something that you can't do on your own. It is something that you don't have the ability to carry out. It's something that you don't have the ability to accomplish all by yourself. It's the purpose. Notice what it says. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. Rob, are you saying the disciples had the power to forgive sins? The disciples, for the first time in history, have the power to tell somebody their sins are forgiven. You see, prior to this, in order for your sins to be forgiven, there had to be a sacrifice, an animal sacrifice at the temple. For the first time in history, they can now say, I can tell you how, you have, how to have your sins forgiven. I can tell you there's a sacrifice that was made that was accepted by God because the tomb is empty. He has risen. I've seen him and your sins can be forgiven. What they're holding is the ability to either tell people or not tell people. They have the power in their mouth, in their words and in their lives to tell somebody. Think about that. I can walk up to you this morning and say, there is power that your sins, everything that you've ever done wrong can be forgiven and not held against you. Really? How? Through Jesus Christ. That's, that's the power that they have. It wasn't that they had the ability to say, all right, yours are forgiven and yours aren't, and I'm going to forgive this one. Well, that's a big one. No, no, we're not going to forgive that one. That wasn't what they had. What they held was what we affectionately call the gospel, the good news, that our sins have been forgiven by the death of Jesus Christ. But i got to tell you a secret. Not everybody believed, did they? Because we know coming in the next section... He kind of gets a bad rap, you know, doubting Thomas. Doubting Thomas, you know, he wasn't there. Look at verse 24. 
Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We've seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see his hands, the print of the nails, and put my finger in the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Thomas. Kids in Sunday school are making fun of you all over the place. They're calling each other little doubting Thomases. Thomas, how dare you? That's just the way that we are, aren't we? How long did it take you to believe? What is it? What obstacle got in your way before you believed? Thomas says, he's adamant. I'm not going to believe none of this until I see him for myself. I can relate to that. I tend to be a little skeptical myself. I tend to not believe everything I hear. You know, I, I tend to be that way. I, I probably would have been like Thomas. I don't know that I would have bought into this story. But even where Thomas was, Jesus doesn't show up and say, well, I guess I can't use you. You just got no faith. You just can't make it, Thomas. So I thought, I thought you were all right, but you're just going to have to not be part of the 12. We're down to 10 now. We already lost Judas. Now Thomas is out. That's not what he says at all. Look what he does. After eight days, eight days, think of the arguments they had. Eight days later, eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas was with them. He hadn't abandoned them. Jesus came the doors being shut, stood in the midst and said, peace to you. Eight days later, they're still standing scared. The doors are shut up. And here's Thomas with them and Jesus shows up again. What does he say again? Peace. He doesn't say, I already told you you should have peace. How come you're back to acting the way that you were before? He just shows up right when they need him most. And again, he says the same thing, peace. Peace to you. And then he says to Thomas, Imagine this now. Here you are. Thomas has been doubting. And I got to believe they had all kinds of arguments and disputes and everything else. He says to Thomas, he looks at Thomas. He says to Thomas, I believe he looks at it. The Bible says he says to him. He says, reach your finger here. Look at my hands. Reach your hand here. Put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. How did Jesus know that Thomas said that? Because he was there, even though he wasn't visible. But he comes to Thomas. He meets him right where he's at. He says, Thomas, I know what you said. He goes, here's my hands. He goes, come on, touch them. You want to put your hand in my side like you said? And he pulled, I can just imagine opening up his, his shirt or his robe or whatever was there. Here it is, Thomas. You, you want to put your hand in there? Will that make you believing? He says, Thomas, don't be unbelieving, but be believing. Isn't it great that he meets him right where he's at? I don't know that I would have done that. I think I would have just cast Thomas off and thought, well, you just don't have enough faith to accomplish what I have for you to do. But Jesus, again, meets him right there. And look at Thomas's reaction in verse 28. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. He went from unbelieving to believing. And Jesus says to Thomas, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Who's that? That's us. Unless you've seen Jesus face to face and you want to tell me about it later, I'm, I'll be, probably be like Thomas if you tell me the story. But those that have seen Jesus, yes, they believe. But he says, blessed are those who haven't seen him and believed. 
John says in verse 30, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, John says, I wrote these, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that's the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. John says, listen, the reason I wrote this book is so you and every generation after you, including us, so that we might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that we might believe that he's the Son of God, and that we might believe that we may have life in his name. In his name. Jesus is alive. The tomb is empty. It was opened up so that we could see in. He met his apostles right where they were. In their disbelief, he met Thomas. He brought his peace with them. He gave them the proof they needed. His presence was among them. He gave them new purpose for their life. He gave them the power and the authority to accomplish the purpose that he had given them. Nothing was left undone. This same group of apostles would go on to start the church. This same group of apostles, with the exception of John, would all go on to be killed or martyred for their faith, according to church history. How did they do that? by the power and the authority that was given to him through the Holy Spirit. You and I, can, we need to understand, if your heart is in knots this morning, when I say the word peace, if you think, I just wish I could find some peace, you can in Jesus Christ, I promise you. When I say the word purpose, and you think, oh, I just wish my life had some purpose, I don't really know where I'm going, I don't know what I'm doing, I'm just meandering through life, you can have purpose. God created you for a purpose. Before the foundations of the earth, you were formed. You were formed. He made you and he made me for a purpose. But it's our job to figure out what that is. You weren't formed by accident. But I don't know if I could do the purpose that he called me to do. He already put some stuff on my heart. and I really don't know if I can do it on my own. You can't. You need the power. You need the authority of the Holy Spirit. You need the Holy Spirit in your life to accomplish those things that God called you to do. And he writes this all to us so as believers we would know and that we would understand he hasn't forsaken us. In their mind's eye, life was falling apart. In their mind's eye, it was a disaster. Things weren't going good. We don't, we're going to get killed. We don't know the future. We know nothing. But in God's eyes, he said, this is the group I picked to start my church. This is the group. These guys, doubting Thomas is going to die for me someday. Thomas declares to him, you are my Lord and my God. John says, I write these things so that you might believe and that you might know that he's the son of God, that you might have life. I think that sometimes as Christians, we miss the fact that there is life in Jesus Christ. Sometimes the gospel message has been reduced to the fact of heaven or hell. Can I promise you and can I tell you this morning that there is life in Christ today? That you can overcome sin today. You can begin living a purpose for God today. That it doesn't, accepting Christ is not something that, you know, it's something in eternity down the road. That's, the, that's one of the benefits. But there's life in Christ right now. I just had the blessing of being able to walk in the Holy Land. I had the blessing of being able to go out on the Sea of Galilee, stand on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, see the places that Jesus walked. See the remnants of what was there. Study the Bible at the Mount of Beatitudes and read the Sermon on the Mount. Right where he walked on water, I got to observe that, that body of water. I got to sit on those shores in the mornings and read my Bible for devotion and think this is where he walked. 
It's amazing. It's unbelievable. He didn't do it for no reason at all. He did it because he loves each and every one of us, and he's called each and every one of us to a specific purpose and a specific plan. There is nothing better than fulfilling God's plan for your life. You know, the way that I became a pastor was I came to the Lord one day, and I said, Lord, you got, there's got to be more to life than what I'm living. There's got to be more to life than just having a family and a career. Not that those aren't good things. What is it? Why'd you create me, Lord? And I began asking him that question through prayer. Lord, why am I here? What did you create me for? What's the purpose of this? Why? There's, you didn't just put me here to, to be a I was a police officer in Florida, just to be a police officer and, and you know, live in my house and raise my family and swim in my pool. I mean, those are all good and fun things, but there has to be more. And the deeper I went, the farther I went with it, it, it wasn't like it happened in one day. It took a couple of years of me searching and seeking. And then one day, I want you to be a pastor. I want you to move to Cumberland, Maryland. I want you to start a church. What, are you crazy, God? I can't do that. I don't know how to start a church. I don't know how to be a pastor. I've been to school to be a police officer. I'm doing that. Follow me. Will you take a step of faith? Will you step out? Will you follow me? Will you just let me lead you? I said, I would. Here I am. Here you are. I thought early on that there would never be a church. I thought early on we'd have a few people they'd leave and then it would be done. I'd move back to Florida and that would be the end of it. God had other plans. Radio stations and churches and growth and all of those things. But it's all him. I want you to understand that when I come up here and teach, it's not like I, I, the reason I can do what I do is because God has given me the ability to do it. Not because I've went to school and learned how to do it. When I share to you from the scriptures, it's because God's opened them to me. I'm just sharing what he's sharing with me as I study and I learn. You can do the same thing in your life, whether it be in your family, as your husband, as your wife. You can be the man or the woman that God called you to be. But it all starts with choosing to follow Jesus Christ. Lots of people have accepted Christ, but they're not following Christ. They believe, but when it comes to living for Christ, ah, I don't want to give up my, my, my part-time thing that I like to do over here. I don't want to give up this. I don't want to give up that. Can I tell you that it's worth giving up? I've given up a lot for Christ of what the world would say is good. And I'm telling you, I would much rather be here. To me, Cumberland, Maryland is the best place in the world to be. It's because it's where God called me. It's where I'm living my life. I'm living my calling. I'm watching God work in my life. I'm watching him work in your life. But it all starts with someone saying, I want that. I want that peace. I want that purpose. I want the presence of God in my life. Without it, think about it this way. You were created for a purpose. Do you think you can find fulfillment anywhere else? If there's anything better than Jesus in this world and following Christ, I want you to come tell me because I want to try it. I want, I'll, if, if, if I haven't already done it and I think it makes sense, I'll, I'll do it. But here's what I've come to find out. There's nothing better than following the Lord. There is nothing better than watching the Lord use your life to do things that you thought you couldn't do or that you thought were impossible. Starting a radio station. None of us, Kevin doesn't know anything about radio. See, you guys don't get to see behind the scenes. You don't know that, that one day Kevin came to me and said, I can't do this, Rob. I don't understand how to do this. I don't know how this is going to work. I can't make this work. I can't get the station on the air. And that we prayed. And I said, Kevin, just try. Just try it. And he did. Before you know it, the airwaves are playing the station. So you guys don't get to see all that. Because that's all behind the scenes stuff. But that's all the Lord doing something in Kevin's life that he didn't think he could do. 
He'll tell you that he didn't think he could do it. So when you hear Kevin say, give God the glory for it, he really is giving God the glory for it. Or you hear me say, it's, it's God's glory that he gets the glory for our church and the things that he's doing. We're praying about starting a drug and alcohol rehabilitation program. It's amazing the way God's moving pieces into place right now. I don't know how it's all going to look at the end. I know that there's a huge need in our community for drugs and alcohol and addiction. And it's not being met the way that I think it should be met. And the Lord's moving on my heart to begin some work in that area. We've been praying for now. Our, our prayer group has been praying for over a year. I've been praying personally for over two years for this. So when it comes to fruition and I stand up here one day and say, we've got it. We've started. We're, we're doing. We're ministering in this way. It's not because it was just on a whim. It's taken a couple of years of prayer and watching God work. But when he does, and you get put on the air, and you, radio's on the air, and then we start a program, and we do these things, and we follow God, it's amazing. Because you know why? When you step out of your comfort zone, and you're working in his power and his authority, he gets the glory for it. God can use anybody in anything. What he needs is somebody willing to be used. So the question is, are you willing to be used? But it starts with making a decision to follow Christ.